You're listening to another episode of The Zag, and if it sounds like my guest and I today are best friends, it's because we are at this point. This is the third try of this wonderful podcast due to technical difficulties, but I'm convinced third time is the charm. I'll be here with Wade Dean, 2017 fellow and our resident music expert. Looking forward to having this conversation one more time. I'm sure you will too. Let's get to it. All right, Wade, how are you? I'm doing good. How you doing, Eric? I'm good. Um, some of these questions might sound familiar, but I still like hearing your answers. Tell me again, in terms of musical instruments that you play, what do you play? Um, I, I play saxophone. I play piano. Uh, also, as a saxophonist, we are trained to double. That means I play clarinet and flute as well. And when you're trying to teach somebody how to play an instrument, what's the, what's the hardest part in trying to do that? Getting them to understand and conceptualize music as language. Uh, a lot of times when like kids or anybody learns how to read or play music, you put a sh- piece of sheet music in front of them and you're like, okay, go. Uh, but if you conceptualize music as a language, uh, then you think about how you learned how to talk. And I don't know about you, but my mom and dad, when I was like one or two years old, didn't put like Webster's Dictionary in front of me like, okay, have at it, right? You know, you listen to them, you mimic sounds, you mimic words, uh, you mimic phrases, uh, certain ways of, uh, certain cadences, and then you create your own way of articulating language. That's the same way I think about music. So a lot of, um, most of the time, in fact, every time when I am teaching somebody how to play any, uh, means of articulating or reproducing music, I never give them sheet music until maybe a, a month or two, uh, after we've started. And then what's been more fun for you, teaching someone actually how to play an instrument or teaching what you're teaching now, which is more music and culture, music and theory? Oh, man, <laughs> that that is a very hard question to ask. I mean, answer. And I don't even know if I can actually answer that uh, without being disingenuous in that I enjoy both of them. Uh, I get a certain joy, a certain fulfillment from doing each one. So. Yeah, if I, I, I'm privileged, I'm blessed to be able to do both in this particular point in my career. And then for folks who don't know, tell everyone where you're teaching now and what you're teaching most often. Well, uh, I'm at the UCLA, so I'm uh, getting my PhD there. I'm actually in the dissertation phase of this entire exercise. But uh, this quarter, I am teaching rock and roll history. And what's on the syllabus for rock and roll history? Uh, well, this week we're talking about the blues. We're talking about, I know, right, uh, the good stuff. So we're talking about uh, Robert Johnson and uh, Big Mama Thornton, uh, Manny, uh, sorry, excuse me, Ma Rainey and uh, Bessie Smith. And then are you putting each musical artist through a specific framework? So like every time a new artist is introduced, hey, we'll listen to a song and we'll talk about it or we'll do lyrical analysis like what's your actual approach well i try to i try to uh get my kids because uh, when you're teaching you never start calling you know, stop calling your students your kids I, I try to get them to think about music as in what is music doing not uh particularly what it is so when we're thinking about the blues we think about what is the blues doing how was the blues cultivated and and deployed in order to announce black subjectivity, uh, the lived experiences of black lives during that particular point. Uh, and when you do that, it gives you a, a more a more critical view of how music plays or has this interplay between uh, social political culture and individuality. 
And then are your students coming as a blank slate? Do they have any prior experience with this music? How would you describe it? Some of them are musicians uh, at various stages of the game. Some of them do come with a blank slate. And I'll be real with you, some of them just come thinking they're going to get an easy A. Uh, for those who are coming for that, they are uh, they get a, a very rude Slowly awakening. Slowly mistaken. Yes, <laughs> indeed. And do they write papers? Do they have to perform? What are the actual assessments that uh, they, they... Well, so you have a midterm, you have a final. Uh, each class, I try to get them to write because describing music is very, very, it's very hard. Uh, because a lot of people say, oh, it sounds good. Oh, it sounds bad. Or oh, I like this artist. Or oh, I don't like this artist. And you don't get outside of that. So I'm trying to uh, put them in a situation where they are forced to use very precise detail about what music is doing. So that's the one thing they do during the first five minutes of every class. I always give them a certain prompt to riff off of. Uh, and also, they do have a paper as well at the end of the quarter. And then you've been on college campuses now teaching for a while. In the post-Trump era, what have you noticed, if anything at all, uh, in terms of a, a change of how the student body interacts with music or interacts with culture in general? You know, uh, there's this whole debate regarding safe spaces, and I see that debate being played out in very, very pronounced and sometimes visceral ways, especially at a campus like UCLA. Uh, I see people trying to figure out how to talk to one another again. Uh, but more, uh, more importantly, how to listen to one another. And I think even, even more importantly than that, how to listen through one another and that you might not see somebody's worldview or understand their lived experiences at the first go around. However, you keep on revisiting that. If you keep on revisiting these conversations, these difficult conversations about identity and where people are coming from or either where they see the world, how the world manifesting itself, then I believe that we could, that the college culture and this very, as you try to frame it as a conservative versus liberal space, can find a happy medium. And then the students that are in your class, demographically, what's the breakdown? Uh, honestly, uh, it is primarily white. And that annoys me to no end. And if you could be in the UCLA admissions office, how would you try to change some of these things? Well, I know that... Uh, like two years ago, I worked in the Department of Diversity and Inclusion, and they're doing everything they can to uh, not only diversify, but find inclusive measures of really adding a certain, uh, a certain broad spectrum uh, to the university experience. And they are doing very critical and important work. I would say, though, that, you know, that it's a multi-layered problem in that you can go into the public school system and see how kids in marginalized areas are being prepared for college. More importantly, are they being told that college is an option? Uh, also, are there options for kids from these areas to pay for school? Uh, do they know what FAFSA is? Do they know how to go about doing that? Sometimes they don't even have a computer to access their FAFSA. So there's so many things that need to be addressed that can be addressed in order to really add uh, a, a more, and I hate this word, but I have to use in this particular case, uh, diverse experience when it comes to the uh, to universities. Mm -hmm. And then also in, in terms of using your, your, your voice and, and finding a home for you, when you think of modern day musicians, like who comes to mind as folks you feel like are really taking advantage of the platform they have and taking advantage of their music to try to make a positive impact on communities oh, and country I mean, at large? So many. I mean, of course, you hear about, you know, Beyonce doing uh, the recent hurricane in Texas, really doing her thing there. You hear about Chance the Rapper doing his thing 
everywhere. Of course, Kendrick Lamar. Uh, and also, these are people that are my favorites. I like people I listen to every day. But there's so many people out here really trying to provoke change, not only within their communities that they come from, but also within how we conceptualize ourselves as a, as a national community. And do you feel like there's any missed opportunities that folks with that platform and that level of fame <laughs> should be taking? You are coming third times a charm because you're coming with the heavy questions. Uh, <laughs> You know, there's always room to critique, and um, there are times that I wish that specific artists are more are more bold in how they are uh, critiquing power, and also how they're levering their power in a way to uh, advocate for those who are from marginalized and vulnerable communities. Uh, of course, you see, like you know, uh, your Jimmy Kimmel's who are really taking on this particular administration in a very pronounced way. Also, you see, like I just went to a, a concert uh, with Solange at the Hollywood Bowl, and she brought it, right? But she brought it in a very subtle way, in that she articulated a degree of black subjectivity that not only critiqued uh, this idea of whiteness as normalcy within uh, the United States, but also a very rigid idea of how blackness should be performed within a national space. So it was. In other words, it was dope. And there are a lot of people doing a lot of dope things right now. I like it. When we come back, I want to ask Wade a little bit about his life as a touring musician. And we'll also talk about an endeavor he's undertaking, uh, namely the planning of his wedding. You're listening to The Zag. Stay with us. Wait, you've been in L.A. a fair amount of time now. Have you been to all the main music venues, both big and small? What are some of your favorite spots? Uh, well, like I said, I just went to the Hollywood Bowl to yeah. see Solange. That's a, dope, that's a dope space. Of course, it's an iconic space, but it's so dope. It's like wide open. Uh, it's, uh, it provokes community in a way that really resonates with me. Uh, I go to the Blue Whale a lot. There's a spot down in Santa Monica off of, uh, it's off of Santa Monica and Broadway. Uh, it's called Harvell's. I love that spot. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's dope. I'm sorry, not Santa Monica and Fourth Street. I want to yeah, make sure yeah. I'm correct. Yeah, uh, what else? Busy. Man, there's so many spots I love to go to. There's a spot. Uh, I'm a whiskey guy. I love bourbon. And so there's a spot called uh, Wolf and Crane down in Little Tokyo. They do live music. I go to Seventh and Grand. They do live music there. So I try to like find these little small intimate spaces where people are like doing bold and dynamic things with music as well. And then, how long, oh, go ahead. Yeah, how, how long were you an actual touring musician, and, and what what band were you with, and what what point in your life was this? Uh, I let's see. I started getting on the road when I moved to Philadelphia in a performing aspect. Before I moved to Philly, I worked with my uncle on various tours as a production assistant. But on the performing side, after moving to Philly, I hit the road with not only with my band but also a gospel artist by the name of Ty Tribbett. Uh, we did, uh, we played the Apollo. I think that particular one, it was uh, George Clinton's 50th birthday. Uh, man, there's so many things. It's just, it's one of those things I miss a lot too. I, I got to add that. Like I miss that so much being on the road and playing and just, just the hang of it all. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then what's the actual day-to-day -day life like uh, with the show actually being a relatively short amount of time? Is it really everyone hurrying up to wait? What's the actual experience like being on the, on the road? Well, you know, sometimes, like, if you're in a certain, a certain city, you have time to check things out. 
you have your call time where you have to be at the venue. Uh, of course, they give you lunch or and or dinner. You play your show, you play your hit, you play uh, the show, and then you got to be back in the hotel. Some some tours have a curfew, some tours don't. Uh, I think the one brutal thing about every tour is like the call time in the morning where you have to be up uh, in whatever means of transportation, the van, Uber, and the like to get to that airport to catch that flight and to get to the next uh, city once again. Uh, that said, it's, it's, it can be brutal in that you're always on the go, but it can be so invigorating because you get to see so many things and so many places and get to meet so many people. Did you only get to tour in the States or were you able to travel overseas and tour there too? I only toured in the States. I wish to God I was able to tour internationally, but I'll save that for something I'm going to do in my own time. I like it. I like it. Um, one of the things you're working on too is a wedding. So give us a little scoop on that. When is the actual date going to be? So the wedding is tentatively planned for October 20th, 2018. I say tentatively because you never know what happens and also trying to secure a venue and getting everybody into one place. Uh, you know, my fiance lives in Athens, Georgia, and, you know, being here in L.A., it can make planning the logistics a little tricky. But fortunately, we have Google Doc and FaceTime and the like. Um, but we're in the beginning phases of it all, trying to make sure that we can foresee any type of hiccups coming down the line. I feel like I'm fooling myself because there always will be a hiccup that I will never be able to predict. And then you're on the East Coast. Are you looking venue-wise at something that'll be pretty large? We're talking like 200, 300 people, or do you think you're going oh. smaller? <laughs> Are you going to pay for catering for 200, 300 people? I'm going to cut you a check. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. No, we're looking for, at something small, maybe 50 to 60 people. Uh, I've been looking rather closely, or we have been looking rather closely in the Blue Ridge Mountains along the North Carolina and Georgia coastline, something that is intimate, something that... You know, I, I, I realize that, you know, a lot of people put energy into a wedding and weddings are important. But I'll be real with you, uh, Eric. I'm more concerned with having a, 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 a strong partnership, a strong marriage. Uh, if we have a great wedding, that's all well and good. But uh, I'm thinking the moments after we say I do. You know, I've asked this question to a couple other guests on the podcast who had kids and I would ask them, how do you raise a progressive child? But yeah, it's interesting you bring up that point about a marriage. So, uh, when you and your fiance are thinking about the type of union you want to have and being true to your progressive values, like what do you feel like you could do in a concrete way to make sure your your your, your marriage is progressive? Uh, communication and listening, listening and communication. I think you always have to meet anyone, but I, in this particular regard, uh, my partner, uh, my future wife, where she is. Uh, and being able to be patient to listen through that and knowing that I will have to probably listen again and probably have to take a second bite at the apple. Not in that I'm trying to solve a particular issue, not in that I'm trying to uh, uh, address it immediately, but knowing that I'm invested in the process of uh, growing who we are as a unit. And a serious question, how many times have you been in the doghouse and written a song to get your way out of the doghouse? <laughs> I have been, like it's an unfair see, advantage that you have. Honestly, uh, I would say about four to five times. I would say you would have to ask her because maybe she hasn't told me yet. But I, I know definitely four to five times. We've been together. It'll be three years in late December. And I am very good at paying attention like, ooh, I messed up. Let me own up to this, right? Let me say I'm sorry, knowing that I'm not going to get a I forgive you until she's ready to say I forgive you. But let me just at least be accountable. Like, what I did was a bad thing. My bad. 
Last thing I want to ask you, you're one of our more stylish fellows and take great care in your suits. Give the folks at home a couple tips on how you should approach suit buying and suit wearing. The You should wear the suit. The, sh- the suit should not wear you. Uh, you know, you don't have to get a bespoke suit. You don't have to uh, pay a lot of money for the particular suit that you wear. But you should know that or you should be comfortable in what you are rocking at that particular moment. You don't have to go over the top. You know, I see a lot of people uh, wearing like a tie bar and then a tie pin and then a pocket square with an additional pocket square behind that. You know, it's, it's, it's not it just you wear the suit. The suit doesn't wear you. So then when you, a, when you take your suit to the tailor, are there any specific instructions you give the tailor? Do you hand the tailor a picture of what you're trying to go for? Like, how do you sort of make that final alteration piece look sharp? Oh, man, I, I've never gone that far. Usually I just go to the tailor and he makes whatever adjustments he has to make. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, one particular thing that's uh, been something I have to get used to is that, you know, I, I've been working on a lot more because, like I said, Wedding is coming up. I'm trying to be like, you know, wedding fit. But my body has changed and my shoulders have gotten a little bit broader. So the suits that I used to wear are not quite fitting the same. So just letting him know that, listen, just can you make it look that I don't look like I'm about to bust out of this this particular garment? Uh, Can I look comfortable, a little stylish still? And the tailor I go to knows just what to do and how to uh, make sure that it fits right. I like it. Listen, thanks again for, for hopping on and thanks for everyone for listening to The Zag. You can find all episodes in iTunes. And now we are in the Google Play Store and on SoundCloud. We have all bases covered. Stay tuned for more episodes this week. This is The Zag, and thanks again for listening.